Well, I'd invite you to please stand, and if you have a Bible with you, then turn to Galatians chapter 5. Our sermon text is going to be from the book of Judges, Judges 18, but first I'm going to read this New Testament passage, Galatians 5, verses 16 to 26. Um, we, this is the passage about the works of uh, the fruit of the spirit and the um, works of the flesh contrasted with one another. And uh, I'll let you judge for yourself which list we're going to see represented more in the sermon text tonight. I don't think it'll be hard to tell. All right. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Amen. Let's turn to Judges 18. This is a continuation of the story that really began in Judges chapter 17, which we looked at last time. I won't recap the whole thing, but suffice it to say that in the household of this man named Micah, there is an idol made out of money that originally was stolen money and then made into an idol for the worship of God, which Israel was not supposed to do. And he has also ordained for himself a a priest who's not really a legitimate priest. Things are going very wrong in Israel, people are seeking to worship God in all kinds of ways that are not according to God's word. Let's continue with chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtaol, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite, and they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, 
Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Well, then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtaol, their brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So, 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtaol and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jearim in Judah. On this account, that place is called Mahane-Dan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jearim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image. While the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men, armed with weapons of war, and when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man? or to be priest to a tribe and clan in Israel. And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan said, went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth-Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it, and they named the city 
Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel, but the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Amen. You may be seated. So when we want to describe uh, the whole uh, U.S., the continental U.S. anyway, um, we might use a phrase like from coast to coast, or if we're feeling uh, fancy, we might say from sea to shining sea or something like that. You know, from Detroit down to Houston, from New York to L.A., if we want to do the Lee Greenwood version. Um, In Bible times, they had a phrase for the whole land of Israel. The phrase was, from Dan to Beersheba. Dan to Beersheba. So Beersheba was a city in the far south. It's like the Houston. And uh, then uh, if you went way, way north, then you'd hit the Sea of Galilee, and then you keep going up north of Galilee, um, and eventually you would hit the city of Dan, formerly called Laish, which we've just read about, right? So to say from Dan to Beersheba, meant you were describing the whole land of Israel. Well, we're going to see um, in just a couple chapters here, in Judges 20, verse 1, that phrase is going to come up. The whole, all Israel gathers from Dan to Beersheba. Well, Dan, unfortunately, was famous, though, for more than just being the northernmost major city in Israel. Uh, it was notorious, in fact if you were serious about the true worship of the one true covenant God of Israel. Um, Because later in Israel's history, um, it continued to be known as a major center of idolatry, of false worship of God, uh, contrary to what God says in his word. So um, later there was a, a king named Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the king who... Uh, split off the ten northern tribes from um, the kingdom of David's grandson, Rehoboam. And he set up two golden calves, two golden calves, these idols, at two great centers of worship that he designed that he hoped would keep his subjects from going back down to Jerusalem to worship God because he wanted to have worship centralized up in his kingdom. One of those golden calves he placed at the city of Bethel, And the other one he placed at Dan. Dan, then, was one of the great centers of the northern kingdom's uh, persistent idolatry that eventually led to the destruction of that entire northern kingdom as God judged them for that false worship um, after warning them time after time that this was wrong and that they needed to stop doing it and they wouldn't listen. Now, it's very important to bear that later history in mind as we're thinking about the message of Judges 18. We want to be thinking about how later Israelites reading this book would have heard and thought about this history of the origins of the idolatry of that city. This chapter shows that um, idolatry in the city of Dan didn't start with that uh, bad King Jeroboam. 
Uh, as the saying goes, it would never have worked if Jeroboam didn't have something to work with. And what he had to work with was this existing legacy of false worship that stretched all the way back to the very founding of this city in the time of the judges. And that's the history we're looking at tonight. So let's keep all of that uh, big picture in mind as we look at this chapter in three parts tonight. And I'm going to give you the three points as we begin as kind of headings to organize this sermon. Verses 1 through 10, we're going to call deja vu. Deja vu. Second, uh, verses 11 through 26, we're going to call might makes right. Might makes right. And then lastly, verse 27 to the end of the chapter, we're going to call a counterfeit conquest. A counterfeit conquest. So the first 10 verses then. Deja vu. I like to say deja vu all over again. Um, Why do we say that? Well, these first ten verses bring back a lot of memories for Israel. Sounds like some things that have happened before. These first ten verses and the things that happened in them resemble very closely... Uh, uh, one particular episode earlier in Israel's history happens in the book of Numbers when um, Moses sends 12 spies into the land of Canaan to spy out the land. And they're supposed to come back and bring a report um, uh, about how Israel can go up and, and take the land, enter and take it, the promised land that God was, was going to give them. That story in Numbers, of course, has a very sad ending. Uh, there's two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, who say, yes, let's go in. This land is great, and don't worry about the Canaanites who live there. The Lord is going to um, help us. With God's help, we can take them on. Uh, But the other ten spies are not so sure. They are very intimidated by the inhabitants who are already living, the people who are already living in the land, and they um, uh, sow seeds of fear and doubt in the rest of the nation, and it ends up Israel says, no, we're not going to go up. We're not going to do what God has said. We're not going to go in and take this promised land. And so they end up having to wander in the, wil- in the wilderness for 40 years in consequence. Now, when you first read the beginning of this chapter, on a first reading, you might think that that, that puts the tribe of Dan here in a, in a positive light because these messengers, these spies, give a good report of the land they go and spy out. Um, their report sounds a lot more like the, the minority report of Caleb and Joshua than it does like the, the ten spies who were afraid. So we might think, well, go Dan. This, this sounds like, um, they've, it even sounds like they've got a, a solid understanding of, of how God is going to help Israel carry out the conquest. God has given it into your hands, they say in verse 10. So it sounds like they're doing a really good job. However, there are clues here that um, there are some serious problems with what Dan is doing. The first clue is in the very first verse where we hear again that refrain, that tolling of the bell that comes back in these later chapters of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. In those days, there was no king in Israel. From the historian's perspective, what follows, what he's about to say, is a result of that leadership vacuum 
we talked about last time. There's no one stepping up in the tribe of Dan, uh, or in Israel rather, to lead this tribe to follow their actual calling, which is not to migrate north and conquer the city of Laish. That's not what Dan was supposed to be doing according to the instructions God had already given. Back in the book of Joshua, God had given Dan a, an allotment of land, not in the far north, but down right in the heart of Israel, much farther in the south, uh, bordering on Judah and Ephraim and Benjamin. And you might ask, well, why haven't they just settled down there in the land that the Lord actually promised them? And the reason for that goes all the way back to Judges chapter 1. So back in Judges chapter 1, um, sets up for the whole tragic history of this book. There's the initial uh, successes. Israel succeeds in conquering much of, of the promised land early in chapter 1. But then in the second half of the chapter, things take a, a dark turn. You get this list, starting in chapter 1, verse 27, of all the tribes who didn't drive out the Canaanites, who didn't uh, follow through on on the instructions that the Lord had given it, given them, Manasseh, Ephraim, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, and finally, the biggest one, the, the, the climax of that list, the tribe that failed to conquer their territory, is Dan. Dan is seeking an inheritance to dwell in, in chapter 18, up in the north, because they didn't carry out the plan that God actually gave them in the very beginning. And I think we're supposed to see implied here that a godly king would not have stood for Dan just wandering around, migrating, looking for their own idea of a place to live. A godly king would have led Dan, helped them to take possession of the land actually allotted to them by God. But, as we've heard before and we'll hear again, there was no king in Israel. And so Dan, just like the Levite, by the way, in chapter 17, is wandering around, rootless, not being led, not fulfilling their God-given calling. And as a result, they're going to get into all kinds of trouble. All kinds of trouble. And trouble is exactly what they get into when these spies come to the house of Micah. And they meet there this young Levite, this young Levite that Micah had um, made his, his own personal priest. Um, uh, here again, on a first reading, superficially, it can sound like there's something really good happening here. There's something really spiritually deep going on here. Isn't this great how concerned these people are to, to inquire of God whether he approves of their journey? And isn't this great that the priest uh, tells them to go in peace because the journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. He's even using the covenant name of God. And so it sounds very sincere. It sounds wonderful. This is a, sounds like a good thing. Israelites seeking guidance from God and being blessed with an answer that seems to indicate that God approves of what they're doing. But see, we have to, we have to read this in context. We have to see, wait, wait a second. Is this really what's supposed to be happening? When these Danites get to Micah's house and they see the, the, the idols there that Micah has set up, should they have reacted by saying, oh, let's inquire of the Lord here. Let's ask for a blessing from this priest 
who's using these idols to worship God, as, he's, as God has forbidden. They should have been up in arms. They should have been horrified by what Micah had done here. There's at least one of the commentators who reminds us of the obligation that the Lord places on all of the tribes of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 17. He says, If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven which I have forbidden, and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. This is showing the attitude that Israel, the Israelites were supposed to have towards idolatry among other Israelites. Not to say, oh, will you bless us? Will you inquire of God for us? But no, we need to purge this evil out of the covenant people. This is not supposed to be happening, Israel. Israelites don't do this kind of thing because we serve the Lord and we live according to his word. But see, these people of Dan, when they get to Micah's house, they aren't interested in living according to Deuteronomy 17. Instead of purging the evil from their midst, these Danites, uh, they, they see the idolatry of Micah, they see this false priest to false idols, and they think, Awesome. Let's, let's be part of this. Let's get on board. This is cool. We like this. We like this way of worshiping God. And maybe we can benefit from it too. Well, if the idols didn't give it away, there are some other clues, things that should have given them pause when they asked this priest, so who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And the Levite says, Basically, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a mercenary. I'm a, I'm a gun for hire, a priest for hire. I'm here because Micah pays me good. That's basically the answer that he gives. He doesn't even, he doesn't even put a pious front on, him, on, on it. He just says, I'm here because Micah pays me. There's no reference to God calling him to the sacred task of being a priest. There's no reference to the holiness of his ministry or his, his covenantal obligation uh, as a Levite to serve God and to serve God's people and leading them in worship. He says, I, I just kind of drifted here because this is, this is where the job was. This is where I could find work. And um, that's about it. And you have to wonder, also, moving on, you have to wonder, uh, how does this Levite priest, quote-unquote, go about inquiring to get this word from God? What method does he use? He has no legitimate way to do this. No way that God has taught in any place, Israel. Anything that he tries to use to get a word from God at this point <clears throat> can only be superstitious. It's superstitious, and he'll just be imitating the way that the Canaanites try to get words from their gods. He has no reason to expect a true message from the Lord, and the Danites have no reason to expect a true message from the Lord from this man. However, this priest will give him this. He is clever enough he is clever enough to tell them what they want to hear. It's a very common way that many career religious leaders have grown in prestige and influence down through history, both inside the church and outside the church. 
You tell people what they want to hear, they'll come back. They'll love you. They will want to be there, want to keep soaking it up. You just keep telling us what we wanted to hear already. That brings us then to number two. Might makes right. The next phase in this very mixed up and sorry story. Um, Verses 11 to 26. There there are so many things. You you, you ever heard the phrase, what's wrong with this picture? There there are so many things wrong with this picture um, that it's hard to know where to begin. The first thing, and maybe the most blatant, is just the level of lawlessness and just pure thuggery that's going down here. It is purely a might-makes-right kind of situation. It's yet another evidence that there is no king in Israel. This is where things have gotten to in this land. That you have this roving tribe acting basically like pirates. They're basically acting like pirates. They're just taking what they want by force simply because they're strong enough to do it. They have the superior numbers and arms, so they're going to take what they want. Obviously, there's some um, not-so-subtle irony going on here on more than one level. First of all, it's ironic that um, the silver that was stolen at the very beginning of the story, remember Micah had stolen the silver from his, money, from his mother. He gives the money back to her, says, I stole this, and then she says, oh, you're so blessed of the Lord, now I'm going to give it back to you to make an idol with. So he started out by stealing this silver that the idol is made out of, Now that same silver is getting stolen again. Last time it was Micah who stole it. Now it's getting stolen from Micah by the Danites. He's definitely reaping what he sowed, we could say. He's also reaping what he sowed when it comes to this priest. Um, Daniel Block points this out. Micah um, thought that once he got a Levite for a priest, he said, well, now God's going to bless me because now I have a Levite for a priest. But obviously, that is not turning out to be true. And in fact, as, as Block shows, the same character trait that made this Levite want to stay with Micah, it's the same character trait that's now causing him to leave Micah. He is opportunistic. He is a mercenary. He is a gun for hire. He just wants a good, a good job, and he's no dummy. He can see that the winds are changing. And so from his point of view, he's getting a promotion. He's getting a promotion. Now he gets to be priest to a whole tribe instead of just one man's family. What a sad perspective on what priesthood and ministry and being a a Levite was starting to look like in Israel compared to the very high and holy calling that God had set it out to be in his word. The greatest irony, of course, comes in verse 24. And look at that again, verse 24. And he said, you take my gods that I made in the priest and go away and what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? When Micah catches up with the Danites here, what's his complaint? What's his argument? What is his charge about what they've done wrong to him? Basically, it boils down to, and this is the title of the sermon tonight, Hey, you stole my gods. If it wasn't so tragic, that would be just laughable. And I think it's intentional here in kind of a, a acidly humorous way. Micah 
can't protect his own gods, if he can't protect his own gods, how could he ever expect those gods to protect him? And if those gods couldn't protect themselves from getting stolen from Micah's house, how are the people of Dan ever going to expect those gods to protect them? You can almost say that those gods have betrayed Micah, abandoned him just like his priest, if there had been anything real, spiritually substantial about them in the first place. And as, as much as Micah is in many ways one of, the, one, of the, one of the villains of this story, really this is one of those Bible stories where there are no good guys. There are no good guys in this chapter. Everybody's wearing black hats. Um, they're just different styles of black hats, and they're shooting at each other. And yet we're still left with this sinking feeling as we see him just have to give up and go home because there's just nothing he can do. He's just been robbed. They were just too strong for him. We are looking at a time in Israel's history where might makes right, where these powerful and violent people are in charge, and nobody really is showing any genuine concern for the law of God or the true worship of God. This is a dark time for Israel, indeed. This is one of the reasons why we sang Psalm 10 earlier. It expresses this cry of our hearts. We see this sort of thing happening. These people are terrible, and yet they're succeeding. They're getting away with it. What is going on? And lastly, we come to verses 27 to 31, which, which I've called here a counterfeit conquest. A counterfeit conquest. And once again, it seems here at first, like the tribe of Dan is being portrayed in a positive way. Again, we've seen this before, right? So we're on our guard. Seems like they're doing the right thing, but actually they're not. Seems like maybe they're even experiencing what we would call covenant blessings. They seem to be experiencing the blessing of God as they succeed in conquering the city of Laish. They do defeat it. And yes, they now have a place to live. It seems like, and the way they interpret it is, God has now given us an inheritance in this new city. But of course, the city's in the wrong place. This isn't the city that God gave them. When, uh, when John F. Kennedy gave his famous moonshot speech in 1962, uh, he said, we choose to go to the moon in this decade and to do other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. This sounds better in his Boston accent, but anyway, because they are had. Um, there's, there's a meme out there on the internet uh, parodying this. It says, we do this not because it is easy, but because we thought it would be easy. Which I, I always thought that was funny. And um, I think it's applicable to what Dan is doing here. Dan attacks Laish not in faith that the Lord is going to help them supernaturally to accomplish something hard, they go and attack Laish because they think it's going to be easy. And in fact, in this case, it is easy. But you see, if Dan was really trusting in the Lord, really following the plan that God had given Israel for the conquest of Canaan, they wouldn't be attacking Laish. They would be attacking those cities in the south that God originally gave them and relying on the strength of the Lord to overcome those enemies that seemed too powerful for them. And instead, they've traded that hard calling for this cheap substitute, this easy calling in the far north, this counterfeit conquest, where they can set up their counterfeit gods, stolen counterfeit gods, no less, and their counterfeit priest, a fake priest serving fake gods, in a fake inheritance. What a tragic, tragic way for the story to end. 
Um, which is all the more ironic because outwardly it looks like victory. It looks like a great success when actually what the historian is showing us, he's helping us to turn this upside down in our thinking. How does the Lord view this? There's a very important application from this that a couple of the commentators make very insightfully from this chapter, especially Daniel Block, also a man named Lawson Younger. And here it is. I'm going to get this across to us tonight as we think about our own lives in light of this story. They make the point that success, success is not a reliable indicator of faithfulness. Success is not a reliable indicator of faithfulness or of the blessing of God. Just because somebody is winning does not mean that they are right. And boy, we can really get mixed up by this. We all, I think, have a natural tendency to read outward success in life measured in terms of, well, the things that most people treat as important, measured in terms of wealth and security and comfort and ease and public approval and uh, large numbers and things like this. We tend to read um, high marks in those categories as signs of the blessing of God, signs of God's approval. And sometimes they can be. And, and when we experience a measure of those, those good things of life, we should thank God for them. We should give the glory to him and recognize that those things do flow from him. But we should not assume that because we have those things, because we have wealth, health, security, numbers, approval by others, that that's a sure sign that we're doing what really pleases God. Because, as we see here, frequently it is precisely the path of compromise that offers us those things. And it is often precisely the path of faithfulness that offers, in the short run, the opposite of those things. It's the path of faithfulness that often offers to God's people suffering, sacrifice, need, lack. Now, I could um, kind of pick the low-hanging fruit here and go after the kind of um, really big church ministries that, that, that have a tendency to water down the gospel, to attract people through um, like entertainment and therapeutic kind of just health and wealth messages that teach you how to use Christianity to get the things that you want. When they've, they've substituted the true gospel and the whole counsel of God um, for, for something else entirely. Um, I was thinking about this priest, I was thinking about some advice I once received about church growth, which was that what you win them with is what you will keep them with. What you win them with is what you will keep them with. And it was a warning to me against always trying to chase new gimmicks, new programs, just to get people in the door, to get them interested in the church, because if that's why they're there in the first place, well, then you just have to keep giving them more and more of those gimmicks and programs and, and entertainment to keep them satisfied. And, and what we want to do instead is we want to win people with the pure gospel of Jesus Christ, with the good news, with Jesus himself, with his word, with the simple means of grace and with the beauty of the holiness and the sovereignty of God, what the scriptures actually teach. Because if we can whet people's appetite for that, for those things, then that is what they will keep wanting and their appetite will grow for it. And that's what they'll keep coming back for, for the things that the Lord is actually interested in feeding his people with. 
And so all of those applications to, to the church and its ministry, evangelism, outreach, and things, I think are important here. Um, but there's something else, really, that I want to leave you with. Because, again, that's kind of low-hanging fruit. But I want to ask you, is there a place in your Christian life, in your callings, where you are substituting the difficult calling of real Christian discipleship that God has actually given you for some kind of counterfeit conquest, where you're doing what you think will be easy instead of what the Lord has actually called you in his word to be doing. And I'm not sure I really want to make it much more specific than that tonight. I, I'd invite each of you to contemplate that in your own life. Where are you being tempted to live out that attitude we're doing this because we thought it would be easy. Never forget that, as, as it's been said by others, what is appealing to us may very well be appalling to God. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. Just because you are comfortable, just because you're experiencing a measure of success by some measure. And just because you're happy with the life that you're leading doesn't mean that you're leading a life of real Christian discipleship. You measure that according to God's word, not according to how happy or comfortable you are. We need to remember what the Lord Jesus told his disciples when he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's Jesus' picture of the Christian life. But it's not just Jesus' command for his people. It's not just what Jesus is calling us to. It's what the Lord Jesus himself did. Think about the Lord Jesus. He had every opportunity, every opportunity in his life to take the easy road to please the crowds, to do what would have made him popular and accepted and comfortable and safe. That's precisely what the devil tempted him with in the wilderness when he said, all the kingdoms of the world, you can have them now without ever having to go be crucified and suffer for sinners. You can have them now if you'll just bow down and worship me. Jesus had every opportunity to take the easy path. But instead, what did he do? What did he do for you and for me? He kept to the mission that he had actually been given by his father. The hard mission. The mission that led him to his death. When he took up his own cross and he carried it. Golgotha, where he suffered and he bled and he died so that we could be forgiven. So that we could be forgiven in particular for all of our lawless living like the Danites, like Micah, for all of our own taking the easy path, for all of our counterfeit ways of trying to live the Christian life in an easier kind of way, for all of the ways we have sinfully substituted our way in place of God's way because we like our way better. Jesus died 
for us because that is how we had gone astray. And he bore on the cross the punishment we deserved for that rebellion so much in the mold of this tragic story of the people of Israel. We also want to remember, brothers and sisters, that that same Jesus, that same Jesus who carried his cross and suffered for us, he's not on the cross any longer. He is now wearing the crown. There is a king in Israel, people of God. We're no longer living in this time when Israel had that leadership vacuum and lacked someone to rally them and lead them in pursuing truth and righteousness. We have the Lord Jesus risen from the dead and reigning over us in in love and power and justice. There is a king in Israel for the people of God, and it is his might that makes right, not ours and not anybody else's, no matter how successful they seem and no matter how much they may seem to oppress the vulnerable, oppress the, uh, oppress the people of God. We belong to the ultimate king who is above all of those other earthly powers who no thanks to them abideth. We belong to him and we are following him in the mission. The hard mission, yes. The cross-shaped mission, yes. But it's the mission that he gave us. The Lord Jesus who finished his mission and rose victorious on the other side of it. It is his mission that we are following. And he will see it to completion in us and through us by his grace. That is a very hopeful thing to be a part of. That is a very glorious and good king to be following. Let's repent of all the ways that we're tempted to substitute our way for his. Let's take the easy path instead of the path of the cross. Because we do have a king. And he's placed our, his call on our lives. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we're in such a, a sad part of Bible history right now. But Lord, we're so thankful that just like the shadows help us to appreciate the light so much more, that this, this dark time in Israel's history can show us so clearly what these people needed and what we need and what you have given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, our King. We thank you for the way that he took the hard path, the path of the cross for us, and the way he is now leading us on that path, that hard path of suffering, but suffering that leads in the end to glory and victory in him. So keep leading us on that path, we pray, and help us to have the courage to follow. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.